0: Coming to you from the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains, Denver, Colorado, it's the Savage Cast, a Savage Worlds podcast brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Savages. Here are your hosts, Chris, Savage Mommy Fox, and Christopher, Savage Bull
1: Landauer.
2: This is episode 29 of The Savage Cast. The Savage Sign with Eugene Marshall and Ian Eller. The first in a two-part series. Savage Cast listeners, we have a special guest on today, Eugene Marshall from the crew over at Sigil, who are putting out the Savage Sign Kickstarter. Welcome aboard, Eugene.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: We'll get started with our usual questions. Uh, How'd you get into role-playing? How'd you find Savage Worlds? And tell us about the cool you've already created, and then we'll get around to talking about uh, what's on the burner with Savage Science. So how did you get into role-playing?
3: Well, I've got a story like a lot of people, I guess, my age. Uh, It was 1983, uh, you know, I was watching E.T. and the D&D cartoon, and my parents saw that interest and bought me the 1983 Basic Red Box, the Menser edition with the Larry Elmore cover art. And I was hooked. After that, I went on to Villains and Vigilantes, uh, Heroes Unlimited, Rollmaster. The late 80s, I started doing the Palladium series, things like that. 3.5, eventually died off for a few years, went to grad school, got married, had kids, started a career. And uh, 5th edition kind of brought me back in of Dungeons & Dragons. But, you know, D&D is great. But I started looking for other systems again, just like I did before. And I found Savage Worlds in probably about 2015, 16, got the Deluxe Edition. Started uh, finding some wonderful uh, third-party settings, you know, and uh, I've been hooked ever since.
0: I was going to say, when you're were when you on that uh, that search for new uh, role-playing games, were you looking for something as, as great and chart-heavy as the old Rolemaster was?
3: I was not initially looking (laughs) for it, but, boy, uh, once you get hooked, you know, you roll those uh, open-ended critical tables, right? That's 66.
2: 66 was always great.
3: That's right. The uh, uh, E-Puncture critical tables, you know. I distinctly remember my my DM in a Rollmaster game spent all night creating this massive monster. I got just within range of my longbow. Shot, rolled double zeros, which is open ended. So I rolled again, double zeros, rolled the third <laughs> time. And all the critical table chart result said was foe falls back 10 feet to a suitable place for dying. <laughs>
1: Excellent.
3: <laughs> but it took me 45 minutes just to find the armor class plating for them. Oh, wow. Exactly. So that was, that's a, we, I still play with that guy. And so that's a, kind of a, remember, you know, we joke about that still.
0: So when you came into Savage Worlds, what was the the first setting that you played in or, or what was you, your first exposure to it?
3: Uh, my first exposure was a homebrew fantasy setting, kind of a dark fantasy uh, that I was I got into through Roll20. That's where I got a lot of my gaming in because, you know, I'd moved away from my gaming friends. And so I was just spending time looking around the looking for players uh, forums and somebody was listing that. I knew I had wanted to try it because I was trying all kinds of new settings or new uh, rule systems. And it immediately hooked me with how easy it was to get into the system and uh, understand it and play. Uh, That's so nice compared to so many other rule systems I had kind of, you know, waded through. Uh, And so I was hooked. I made two or three characters. We played for a year or two. And then after that, I went on to other settings, Uh, you know, Deadlands, East Texas University, uh, all kinds of good stuff. So you hit
0: all all the highlights and and all, all the greatest hits.
3: That I tried to, yeah, and I'm still trying. You know, that's I'm I still play. So, so how how uh, do you great. feel
0: about? Um fantasy having that be your first exposure to savage worlds i know i've talked about it in the past and on another show i'm on we've talked about people coming into savage worlds and if you're a dnd player not to play fantasy your first go around did you see did you have any difficulties with that with getting that stuff out of your mind and just focusing in on hey this is a different beast than those other fantasy games
3: uh, it wasn't hard for me because even in the '80s, what I started with D and D, but I pretty quickly went on to Heroes games and Sci-Fi. Uh, same thing when I came back to Fifth Edition. You know, it wasn't long after that that I played Dungeon World, and then I started playing Cypher System and Savage Worlds, and so I was already kind of, I don't know, you know, mashing it up. And that's what I liked about Savage Worlds, probably the best. I think it might be, I think it is the single best rule system for genre mashups. So, oh, we know,
2: you know nothing was, about genre mashups. It's not like we're like, doing like, four different projects that are all
3: genre mashups or anything like that. No, never. Right. It's great. It's great stuff. And that, so it was immediately, it's its own thing, but it does it really well. So I love it.
2: Yeah. So when, was your, when did you break your publishing cherry? What's the first project you worked on to actually get published in, in role-playing games?
3: So this is a kind of funny story, actually, because uh, I'm a newbie. When it with regards to actual published game designing material. I've got so I've been working on professional content for almost two years now, but because of the way publishing works and because of the way very large you know groups of people collaborate very slowly sometimes. Uh, the first thing that actually appeared in print that you can get on drive-through RPG just appeared last week in the form of the jump start for uh, Savage Sign. Uh, and uh, a Savage Worlds Adventure Edition. I've still got, let's see, I've got a thing that's supposed to be coming out very, very soon for World of Darkness called Denizens of Darkness. I did the, I wrote most of the majority of the content for that. I've got a Dungeon Master's Guild adventure called Shape of Madness that's going to be coming out shortly, and, of course, the Savage Sign. Uh, I did a lot of the content for that. So, uh, But, no, that means that, really, I've got all these things about to come out but for the most part, I'm
2: new. That's fantastic. Welcome aboard. The uh, you know Fox Thanks. and I did the same thing about a year and a half ago, and uh, it's definitely changed our role playing lives uh, for the better. And it sounds like your broadcast spreading like all over the place. I mean, different systems, different you know forums, and uh, you know your name's all over this first savage sign. So tell us what um, settings, what, what settings you're working on on the savage sign. Give us a little background for uh, for those.
3: Sure so i uh came in originally just pitching one setting called revolution it's a historical fantasy so it's set in like 18th century france you know like 1789 right before the french revolution and uh but it has fantasy elements so think if you're familiar with this book or the miniseries jonathan strange and mr norrell you know it's kind of got that like mixture of You know, it's urban fantasy, but set in a particular historical place. And that's in part because my day job is as a college professor, and I teach that period. So I kind of – it's like I got to mix my peanut and my chocolate butter – or peanut butter and chocolate, I mean. Right. Uh, My two favorite things, right? But once I was in, I kind of uh, offered to help out, and uh, Aaron Acevedo, who runs Sigil Entertainment, was – and is in charge of this project, kind of brought me in to do editing. And then I ended up doing – a lot of the mechanics for a lot of the content so stat blocks for all four of the major settings we've got we've got a sci-fi psionic setting we've got a survival horror post-apocalyptic setting and we've got a kind of modern political supers here setting so i did stat blocks for all of them i did mechanics for a lot of them uh and i kind of supplemented some of the actual writing so i guess i'm writer slash mechanics game dev, uh, dev guy i did a couple of the savage tales in there I don't know what percentage is. We haven't calculated the word count yet because they're still finalizing what's going to go in. But it's, I surprised myself with how much I uh, enjoyed writing it. I was say, it sounds
0: like a, like a ton of output for this first one.
3: Yeah, I ended up being uh, luckily it fell over my you know winter break in between two uh, semesters, so I had a lot of free time and it just kept coming out. I was apparently I've been pent up wanting to do more game <laughs> development. <That's great. laughs>
2: Well, hey, it's a fantastic way to make your debut, right? I mean, it's like, here is all the content I have given you nine different things to play in. Play my games.
3: It's so great. And, it, you know, what really makes it possible, though, and why I hadn't done more of this before is because I'm, I have a kind of facilitator in Aaron and his team that, you know, I am mostly a writer and person that likes to tinker with rules and mechanics. And I don't do art. I don't do layout. I don't have industry connections so but you know i had been playing originally where a uh, vampire and then D with aaron and so we kind of knew each other just from gaming together and so he kind of invited me into the fold and it just went from there but because he gave me a kind of avenue of like here's what you need to do next i would go write it and then i'd bring it back and i'd say what do you need next and it just kind of spiraled from there
2: yeah, I think the role-playing community, in a good way, um, this is a dangerous metaphor, is kind of like the drug community. Like <laughs> you get hooked, then you get your friends involved, and then you find a dealer, and then then you get connected to the distributors who are like a little higher up, and you get you know into the industry, and then you're you know then you're you find yourself you know uh, Shane actually made this joke. Come to think of it, he was talking about on two three days ago on Facebook, like with all the troubles that that uh, game designers are having getting games shipped into Europe, maybe we should start a smuggling ring where people can, you know, uh, hide RPG games uh, somewhere on their persons <laughs> and <laughs> smuggle them into Europe to avoid the VAT taxes and all the other uh, import-export stuff. And uh, But it's kind of true. I mean, we've, we found the same thing as the Savages, the Rocky Mountain Savages as, uh, you know, Fox and I went into it as uh, noobs um, under Buccaneer. And uh, I'm pretty proud of the product that, um, Fox wrote and put out. And, uh, but there's a lot of things we just didn't know. I mean, you know, we right. didn't have a connection in Asia to do printing. We didn't have an art director or, you know, so we had to do a lot of it ourselves. And it is, you know, the first time out kind of overwhelming, you know, like, you know, yeah. when do you have to pay people? Who do you have to pay? How much should we be paying? And, you know, a lot of – even though there's a lot of, um, you know, community hand-holding, even just knowing where to go and where to ask. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, we it, – it's – I'm proud of those guys for getting a book done on our own um, the first time. But now, like, you know, all that work we've learned, it's like, well, hey, wait a minute. We've got a dozen or more other game masters who are really putting out great content here at our conventions year in and year out. Uh, who don't have their name on books? Like w- now that we know who to talk to, and and uh, you know made some of the mistakes and corrected them, and uh, you know and, and kind of know a little bit about the industry. Why don't we help them get published too? And so we've upped our game, and now you know this time around with our, our projects, uh, you know we we do we are kind of like you're saying, like you know, talking with Aaron, talking with other industry and as insiders, actually getting the information and compiling it and figuring out you know the best efficient game plans for. Uh, you know, how to get things published. And um,
0: say so we learned a lot from our Kickstarter of what we're not going to do with our next Kickstarter.
2: Right? <laughs> and, well, and it's, it's not even like, I mean, you know, uh, I think we avoided some of the bigger pitfalls, and those are worth looking at. Because, I mean, there, there are, if you, if you look at Kickstarter, there are some big name companies who have put out hundreds of books who still made colossal errors. Um, yeah. And maybe it was it was a small choice that turned out to be an error that was just it was like, you know, It didn't get produced, you know. Um, and and yeah, I'm sure everyone can can think of some of those names that you know. Oh yeah, they you know raised a ton of money, raised five figures, six figures, seven figures of money, and then oh, wait, they're laying off staff. The book's not getting produced. There's no more money left. You know, da da da, da. Um, So we didn't do that. But, you know, yeah. the, um, you know we, we, we got a book out, and uh, we, got, you know, we fulfilled our, our Kickstarter backers, but we didn't do enough to get into distribution. And, um, you know, but then we, then we figured out, oh, well, no, we actually, we probably could have gone into distribution if we would have known before the Kickstarter. And that's the weird thing. It's like, on your first time, you don't know your numbers. Like, you have no idea how, right. you know, are we going to sell four uh, copies of this, or fourteen, or four hundred? And how many do we really right. need to get before we get? Uh, you know, when is it worth calling China and saying, "Hey, guys, how right. much is going to be printing?" and, and how do we deal? And uh, and you know, in that first time, we just w- we were a little more risk averse uh, going at it. Going, well, we don't want to we don't want to bankrupt ourselves and then have um, ten thousand copies of our book in our garage for the next twenty years. Um, right. you know, and um, yeah, so we thought that, you know, that avenue is not, not open to us. Um, so, you know, we went print on demand and print on demand margins are much higher than than the know um, worse, much worse than uh, the print on demand costs are higher than um, you can do offset if you hit a certain number. And like a thousand is kind of that number. But you don't have to get a thousand on your Kickstarter. You just you really have to get around three, four, five, six hundred somewhere in there. And then the rest will all go into distribution. And right. it's like, oh wow, this this is amazing information we can give to people. You don't have to be that big. You don't have to be, you know, a seventh C and get, you know, multiple right. tens of thousands. Yeah. You don't you don't have to be even pinnacle itself. You know, you don't have to get uh, what, half a million dollars right. on, yeah. y- on your book. Wade, yeah. Right?
3: I mean that's what's been great about Aaron having Aaron in charge of this project is because he's been doing art direction for Pinnacles, all okay. those projects, all of those Kickstarters, and including stuff for like Ulysses Spiel as well, like Torg. So he knows this stuff backwards and forwards, and I just say, okay, if you say so, and I do it, and it ends up looking amazing. So uh, right. I'm glad I have him uh, you know, as uh, to follow.
2: <laughs> right, and there's so many talented people. I mean, I, I, I think the... Um, I was looking at a, a really blockbuster RPG product recently, and I was looking at the quality, it, and I'm like, you know... Like this is sold a ton, but man, the art's just okay. And the layout is just okay. And you look at yeah. stuff that like Aaron puts out and it's like, this is as good as anything else in the industry. The yeah. art is fantastic and varied and the layout is really precise and on point and useful. And, um, you know, so it, it is fun knowing talented people and <laughs> being able oh, to, yeah. to take and advantage I of mean, that.
3: That's, I've seen glimpses of the, you know, content Savage Design, and it's, I, I think it's hard, you know. I'm, it's, I'm frustrated by the Kickstarter page just because there's no way to really accurately convey on a web page, or at least that I've ever seen, like how cool this thing is to, to look at, to see, right? Like art, the layout, and then you get like four complete settings. Like this thing is amazing. Right, it's but,
2: very ambitious.
0: Yeah, I was yeah, going to ask is. you. So, um, a. Cu- Two questions, and you kind of just led right into the, into one of them. So my question, my two questions was, you know, if you could tell people, you know, who haven't been uh, gone and backed this yet, you know, why why would you say back this? And then I'm kind of curious, which one of those settings uh, that are in there do you have a favorite? Um, you can kind of answer those in, the, in in any order that you want, but that was kind of a couple of things I just sure. was thinking about.
3: Well, I mean. The way I see it is this thing is like the complete package, right? So if I... I mean, of course I'm biased because I'm involved in the production of this thing, but if somebody asked me, hey, I want to get into Savage Worlds, I'd say go pick up this Adventure Edition and then pick this up because it, ha- it will have four uh, settings of four very different genres. Every one of those settings having itself some genre mixing going on. It also comes with at least four complete adventures ready to run with pre-gens. It's got, it got a bunch of special uh, mechanics you can use as optional. If you want, it's got creature features. It's got comics and fiction and the arts. Amazing. It's the same quality as the adventure edition itself because it's made by the same guys, but <laughs> right. But, uh, right? but uh, uh, so I would say that, and I, I really do think that's true because that's, and it really highlights what's good about Savage Worlds. Like I said, that the genre uh, Mash up ability, how flexible the system is, how you can run it kind of vanilla, or you can tack on extra mechanics, you know, like in this, in, you know, Swayed itself, the chase rules, or in one of our settings, Virulent, we created an infection mechanic for, you know, if you get scratched by a zombie, what happens, that sort of thing. And, you know, you can mix and match that stuff as you see fit. And so it's the Savage sign, is should people should back it if they're interested in Savage Worlds because. It gives you really everything you need, and it's all up to date with the newest edition. Uh, honestly, the setting content and the art alone, I'd say somebody might want to use that if they're even if they're running it with a different system. So I think it's pretty; it sells itself. Now to address the second question, which is the settings. Of course, I have a favorite. One of them is my baby; it's the Revolution setting. But I also recognize that it's a little niche, right? Some people. Don't like I in the setting document. I lay out like you're the sector, the sectors of Paris that you might move around, and it's all like period accurate. Like here are the what the political system's like. Here's the head of the Paris Guard. You know, Guard de Paris. This guy was kind of a big jerk. But and if you're interested in that sort of thing, it's you know if you want to like because one of the savage adventures that we've got to this thing is rescuing the Marquis de Sade from the Bastille. <laughs> you know. Like, if nice. that's the kind of thing that you're like, oh, that's awesome. Or, you know, like you really were into Scarlet Timpernel or The Three Musketeers or Man in the Iron Mask or one of those sorts of stories. This is for you, uh, more so than I think anything else on the market in any system. However, let's say you're not that's not your jam. I'm really pumped about Sinauts, the sci-fi setting, because it is we built it so that you can run it either as a survival horror, almost sci-fi, like the video game Dead Space You can run it like a kind of epic galaxy hopping adventure like Mass Effect. You can also run it like a kind of big robot, you know, Voltron team piloting a robot kind of thing. It even has rules for uh, a team using their powers to uh, activate something together, like a team move, like you see in Gatchaman or Power Rangers. Cool, nice. It's so flexible that you can run like, such an exciting range of games, uh, whereas Virulent and Pantheon are both also awesome but they're a little more curated, you know, like you're getting a specific experience and if that's your jam, then I recommend those too. Yeah,
0: I can tell you we have a, we have a, a guy in our Saturday night group who is a, a huge history buff and I think he, he majored in history in college College, I don't know what, what uh, type of history, but you know that revolution, I just, he would love that so be excited to to once I get my my copy to show that to him and and uh, maybe get him to run something out of it.
3: Well, that's I'm excited to hear that. If just uh, if you or he or anybody is interested in like talking about any of that, feel free to hit me up on, you know, Twitter or Discord or whatever. I, that's the kind of thing I could just talk about all day to another person who wants to geek out about it. I'll spare everyone now <laughs> because uh, you know. Like I said, it is my day job. I just I talk to my students about that all the time too. So that's that's great stuff.
2: Oh no, and, and I know exactly what you mean about uh, a curated experience in a given place and time. I mean that's very much what Marginalia is is you know forming up to be. Um, <clears throat> you know it, it it is not going to be a you know it it, it, it it's a very like you said like it, it could be. A scripted TV show you know, and in the sense yep. that you know to, to do the politics right and the the, f- the theme and the flavor of the era there 's just a certain amount of data dump and curating you have to do with players. And um you know, to to so they can navigate that because it's you know, otherwise it's kind of a too big of a job for a GM to be like, oh, well here we're gonna we're gonna flavor some of the things with this this setting flavor, but it's it's gonna be more like weak tea. Well, no, no, no. I want this to be like dark coffee or you know, <laughs> a, a thick Chianti, not a Oh, it's just it's real light and effervescent and they'll give you the hint of, well, no, 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 no. This has gotta be if you are part of this organization or that organization, here are the actual people who were running them right. then. And and we're not going to bother reskinning them because hey, there's uh, plenty of, of extra research you could do if you wanted to go a different direction. You know, yeah. you can actually get on, you know, Wikipedia or buy a book or um, you know, listen to a historical podcast and run in that direction. And um, so, I, I think there's room for that. And I and I agree. Like when I was you know, looking at it, I'm like, there's very few settings that are like this on the market currently. You know, a lot of people have gone the other direction. Um, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, you, you kind of hear – I think when, when, when I hear players and GMs saying I want more uh, things I can sit down and run in Savage Worlds versus worlds that I can build my own with – yeah. When they ask for plot point campaigns, when they ask for adventures, I think that's kind of what they're asking for is um, a little more content, a little more railroady versus sandbox. Um, just, you know, just something that the, the GM can do a little less work, and, but you can still have kind of a, a fantastic experience. And I think um, I'm glad to hear other people are producing similar games in that in that genre because I want to play right. in those too. I don't want to just write them. I mean, you, you, at right. some point you want, you end up writing them because they're not there and you want to play them so you're like hey well fine i'll write it um so no this revolution sounds fantastic the um give us one little preview of either something mechanically or narratively that you've got in revolution that you're proud of
3: let's see um so okay so uh, let me just i want to address just one thing you said a second ago about curated experience and then i'll answer that question so the way i set up revolution and the way we're trying to do any of our settings but especially revolution is presented as that curated content rich detailed setting but i do leave the door open to play it a little more broadly so there's kind of so there's guidance for look if you want to run this historically kind of close to the accounts that we have historically here's how you do it but if you want to step back a little bit and have your game be feel more like pirates of the caribbean movies or that movie brotherhood of the wolf or something oh that's a just fantastic labor, guess. Right? So you can do that. You know, even like Sleepy Hollow or something, it has rules for that. Which brings me to your actual question, which is, look, it isn't just a historical adventure, right? There is fantasy, fantastical elements. And so one thing that I'm very happy about is the way that I uh, kind of merged those two. So I have ar- I present archetypes for characters you can make, and they match kind of different positions of social class. So you can be what's called the San culottes which are like the peasant- fighters that kind of have a kind of a rough and ready very physical kind of edges role or you can play an alchemist which has a arcane uh, background magic sort of st- I mean weird science sort of style you can be a Rosicrucian one of the members of these secret occult societies that's an arcane background magic you can be a spiritualist that's an arcane background uh, miracles you can be a mesmerist that's arcane background psionics yeah, you can be a musketeer You can be a spy. And the thing is, there's guidance for how each of these are actually really ways people moved around in 1789 Paris. Right. Of course, maybe they weren't really casting bolts and protection at each other, but they were still believing that they were really contacting spirits. Or in the case of Mesmerism, France Mesmer was giving demonstrations to the king of France in the 1780s, demonstrating that he could control other people through manipulating animal energies that emanated from his mind. I mean, it's like, this is just the history. I think people who haven't studied it don't realize. The actual history and the actual people were doing stuff that's as it just writes itself.
2: Exactly. I I think you you basically just told me that we're going to have a crossover between this and marginalia. It was the um, uh, very similar concept we're doing in marginalia, which I don't think I talked about before, is um, we don't call it mesmerism, but it's if you are a, a fortune teller you can be yeah. one of two types. You can be someone who's basically a crook. Uh, you know, you you give fortunes, but you know, you're a, you're a charismatic people reader, um, yeah. and there there is no actual connection to the supernatural. Or on the other hand, you're very much like mesmer. Um, You know, there is an arcane background where you actually are pulling from the supernatural kind of elements to manipulate people or draw from people, and uh, Um. that could very much be a uh, a century and a half before. This is what this looked like, and uh, and of course we have the church conspiracies and the secret societies and the sex and the cults and sects, and um, yes, 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 yes. right. And uh, although you know, being in Renaissance Italy, you can't avoid the sex part either, because that's you know, right. anyways. The uh, well, yeah, no, I I I think this is fantastic. I'm I'm so happy that the, that you're coming out with this because uh, there's just more like uh, you know, for instance, like Daryl who um, is also working on the sign. Um, he's working on a project called the Empire of Venom and Silk where. It's um, you know giant spiders kind of uh, invade um, uh, the his his setting and I'm like and he's also working on SWAT with us and one of the one of the plot point campaigns we're doing for SWAT is a parody of Middle Earth and I'm like okay here we go crossover we're doing you know Shelob the the spider uh, you know ah. seal number was filed off is going to be a crossover with Empire and Venom and Silk and. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll shoot you some ideas on some some uh, Marginalia crossover we can do. Uh, oh, that
3: sounds awesome, yeah.
2: Nice. So give us um, where w- people can find you since you are um, new on the scene. What's yes, your, on the socials. Right, yeah. How, how can the people socials. find you to contact you?
3: So um, the easiest way is I'm on Twitter at Eugene Marshall, all one word, E-U-G-E-N-E, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. Uh, that's probably the easiest of the socials. I have a... Uh, I guess I did, used to have a Google Plus thing, but that's going away.
0: So sad. Um, yep, I just got my email yeah. saying it's gone.
3: Yeah, so yeah, I did too. So Or com. you can email me. Um, that's probably the best place to grab me. Perfect.
2: Well, thank you, Eugene. Uh, congratulations on actually getting out and getting some gaming in today. We're actually we, we were calling Eugene on the road, so this is technically our our first on the road segment. That's right. Uh, and, I, and I'm Grass very
0: today. very excited about getting my hands on this. I'm I will tell you that I am waiting extremely impatiently to get <laughs> to get my copy of this.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's currently on Kickstarter. It's funded, but there are stretch goals to still unlock. So oh yeah, and
0: I, I backed it. I can tell you, I backed it. I think uh, a print PDF for 16 dollars yeah. i think it was so
2: right four settings It's a four yeah. dollars a settings yeah. people four dollars for a setting come get on get in there get it get it well thank you gene for joining us and we will, i'm sure we will have you on again because it sounds like you've got some great ideas and content to offer the community so cheers amigo
3: hey thanks a lot nice talking to you guys
0: all right drive safe
2: Savage Cast listeners, we have another special guest from the Savage Sign Project, Ian Eller. Welcome aboard the Savage Cast. I'm of special guests today.
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. And I am, in fact, a special
2: guest. Right, you're very special, and uh, and you're and not just your mom who told you so. The uh, so tell us so, uh, a little bit of general background on you first. Um, when did you get into role playing? how did you get you know? How'd you find RPGs? Uh, and then well, how did you find Savage Worlds?
1: Well, I was I was one of those kids who's uh, parents brought home that minster red box back in the day i was 10 years old at the time awesome parents started that started the big love affair um i think the first game that i discovered that wasn't D &D was um uh, palladium's heroes unlimited so superhero gaming was my my second love but probably my bigger love by the time it was all done um and uh so i'm a lifelong gamer that in the i want to say it's probably 98, maybe, I started writing for White Wolf. Um, I did that for a few years. I worked on um, Exalted, if, uh, their epic fantasy, uh, big epic fantasy game, and then I worked a little bit on the uh, D20 version of Gamma World. Then I had kids, and uh, real life took over a bit. Um, and then a few years ago, I started, I got to know Aaron through a mutual friend and started doing some writing for him. Um, and so got back into freelancing as far as writing games goes, as far as Savage Worlds goes, um, I'm actually relatively new within the past few years to Savage Worlds because I was looking for a faster and more easy to run, uh, game than years and years of D&D.
2: Fantastic. The, um, so what was the first, this is Fox's question. I will not steal it.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, so, so I always ask this. So what was the first, uh, setting or first Savage Worlds game that you played?
1: Uh, the first Savage Worlds game that I played, that I personally played, was Deadlands Reloaded, simply because I have always been in love with uh, the Deadlands, particularly the Deadlands Hell on Earth setting. And so, when I had an opportunity, I think I was at a con to be honest with you. Um, I signed up for a, uh, a Deadlands Reloaded um, and enjoyed the reality that things actually happened instead of fighting with giant dice pools for a long time. Um, and then after that. The first thing I ran was um, uh, the the stuff through the science fiction companion just because I wanted to see how it worked. And so we played a little bit in a mishmash of worlds that was sort of uh, anything in any Savage Worlds book was allowed to show up.
0: Oh, excellent. Yeah. So kind of almost a a Rifts type atmosphere.
1: Yeah, except except for spaceships instead of right. um, giant blasted land masses, I guess. Yeah, yeah
2: what it uh, GURPS had a um, they had a name for that. It was like a Bainstorm or I think it was Bainstorm was very similar, like the you know you, any any you could end up in any of our worlds. You know, there's just a portal and it's sci-fi. No, not you're in ancient Rome, and uh, and I, I always like that. I mean, I think it's just kind of funny how we're we're developing like, uh, several themes here. One, the the Mensa Red Box uh, between you and Eugene, <laughs> and, and also just the the mashup theme of how adaptable role-playing systems really do appeal to uh, multi-genre, multi-time and space mashup. Kind yeah,
0: of Eugene like. actually brought that up as one of the things he really liked about Savage Worlds is the fact that you could do all these really cool mashups and they just, they work.
1: Right, you don't necessarily have to import a, another subset of rules in order to figure it out. One of the things that was always a little bit on the disappointing side of games like GURPS that were touted as being universal is that, yes, they were, but there was still a large amount of information you had to somehow figure out how to get to work with the other information that you already had. Um, and in order to to play you need to be able to do, and in order to do, you need to learn, and that, that slows things down, and a game like Savage Worlds is, luckily, the, the, the barrier to entry is a little smaller, and so that you can just toss those elves next to those aquatic aliens, and everything will be fine.
2: Right? That is very true. The, um, one of the nice things, I think, when we're working at SWAT, and like we want to give people the modular option of um, having cop-style fantasy archers so you know the the cops still have lots of high rate of fire weapons so you get a Legolas effect right you know a little little more uh rapid fire bows but then you know we want to give people the option of of also being able to uh, anachronistically bring firearms whether they're black powder or even you know much more modern into a fantasy setting and I'm like was this going to break anything and like really not i mean savage worlds is nicely um statted uh where you know, a, a crossbow or a, a fast firing bow does about the same damage as a, a handgun. And, yep, 2d6. Right? And so you don't really have to worry about it. it. It's more, you know, the weapon you're using is more of a trapping than it is in, like, say, GURPS, where you get people who are like, oh my God, the 1976 NATO round was actually overpowered versus, you know, the number of, of, of grains of black powder that were in the shell. And that should be a plus two and a half compared to the. AK-47 rounds, because and it's like, oh my god, we do not need this level of detail, no one cares except you, and if you want to care about it, great, but I don't want to learn that to run a game <laughs> you know, and, uh, and Savage Worlds works nicely for that, so uh, tell us what projects um, you're working on for the Savage Sign and, um, and uh, you know, give us some little insight on what we can expect from the publication and from your work on it
1: all right, so we, we started with um, the jumpstart for the new edition of Savage Worlds that we, we developed called Psynot, which is a uh, psychic mech space opera, I guess is the, the best way to go for that. Um, and Aaron and Eugene and I sort of sat down and we we talked about what that universe looks like, and um, uh, Eugene is, is much more a mechanics guy than I am, and I build worlds that 's one of the things I like to do, and so we sort of developed this uh, universe in which humanity had spread out into the stars in slow ships, and in so doing had um, sometimes they terraformed a world, sometimes they changed themselves in order to uh, fi- to be able to fit on a world, but in any case, humans sort of diversified broadly over a couple thousand years or a few centuries, right. But eventually they discover uh, the remains of an ancient civilization that taps into psychic potential of which humans have, and in so doing, they're able to develop faster-than-light travel again, or at least use this ancient faster-than-light network that's there. And so suddenly all of these races of humanity are thrown together again in a competition for who can control these ancient billion-year-old alien ruins and weapons. Um, and that's where the giant mechs come into play because, Ooh. you know, why not have giant mechs?
2: Right. So it's it sounds like I'm getting a little bit of Stargate mixed in with Dune, like folding space and time with your mind.
1: Right, there. there is definitely a little bit of that. Oh, um, and also, so you know, the idea that um, uh, one of my one of the reasons that, that space opera can often be a little bit irritating to more hard science fiction guys like me is that there's all these races and they're just like people except they're green or they have pointed <laughs> ears or whatever the thing is. Right. Well, if we were the ones that went out there in the first place and we had a couple thousand years to modify ourselves or evolve, it would be fine. There's no reason why... Vulcans and humans can't produce a Spock, right? If they're actually all the same people, so that was that was my foundation for that. And then we threw in, you know, mechs and psychics.
2: Fantastic! The um, yeah, that is one. That is actually one one genre that I our game setting. I want to play. I want to play Dune, and I haven't found a good Dune RPG in my history of. I mean, there might be something out there in um, other system, but you know, that's like one of the properties of like. I think it'd be fun to play in this world because you've got like weird religious fanaticism, but also high tech space travel. And, you know, um, it's very man versus environment, but you also have like politics
0: in there too. So, um, and the only thing I know about Dune, and I could be completely wrong, I've never seen it giant worms.
2: Oh, giant worms, yes. That's,
0: that's <laughs> about all I know. I, 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 w- I will uh, take a, a, a ding to my geek my card. Oh. Because I uh, we have one sign never saw it.
2: Oh, it's so fantastic! I'm actually one of the guys.
1: You know, know it's a book series too. Yes, yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh, so the the book. So the original book you have to read it. Fox is amazing. Um, I love the I love the Lynch movie, and the one thing I missed that isn't in the Lynch movie, obviously, because it's a two-hour or two and a half-hour movie, and not you know a 500-page book, is Jessica. Jessica Atreides has this amazing – she's like the the reader character. She's got major social skills, and she can kind of like politically read situations based upon other people's behavior. And there's this great chapter where they're on Arrakis, and they are having a dinner party. And it's like everybody at the table wants to kill at least another person at the table, if not multiple other people. And they're all having this very polite conversation, and she's just like – Reading between the lines on all of it, it is some of the most fantastic writing I've ever read. And obviously, it'd be very hard to shoot that scene because it's all in her head. She's literally just thinking to herself, like, "Oh, that, you know, this and that." And uh, I don't know. I don't even know how you'd role play that. I mean, but whatever. It's just so it's it's a fantastic little thing that I just love from from
1: Dune. And um, so yeah. If I'm, anybody wants to, if anybody wants to get the feel of Dune, the one game that I remember playing that that would I think get you there. Is Fading Suns? I don't know if you recall that game, but it was heavily political in a universe um, where uh, zealotry and religious strife was a major component, along with sort of an impending uh, otherworldly uh, apocalypse, almost on the verge. Fading Suns would definitely give you that feel. Of course, it's a '90s game, so it's got all the inherent um, implications of a '90s game.
2: Yes, the uh, well, yeah, and on that, so. Given that you you've got a really cool mashup here, and you're you're doing everything like you've got mecca and space travel, and um, give us a little insight into um, the the development of that in Savage Worlds. Um, you know, the obviously you, you said you weren't as much of the crunch guy, but um, how do you think, uh, besides you know, crunch or not, how how is that feeling of um, working as a team in a mecca um, coming through in your setting?
1: We actually went back and forth a lot um, with uh, again Eugene driving that, but um, about how to make that worthwhile, right? Because is the whole team, each person have a mech? Is is a mech a thing that's like end game content, as it were, you know, to use some video game parlance? And we talked about it a bunch, and what we realized is that the the way Savage World sort of allows characters to um, focus on individual specialties and stuff you can build a a team that almost runs the mech as a unit like um you know uh, like anime tends to do where you know their five mechs come together and create a giant mech not so much necessarily that part of it but multiple people running the mech at the same time as long as you balance the the action economy so that every player gets to do a thing you can you can still have that feeling of that mech is so big it requires not just the the actions but the, the psychic power of everybody involved to make it happen and of course if you're going to do that you should also need giant monsters that are you know you know a worthy opponent for such a giant mech um, but we also discussed how not everybody want in a, in that setting should drive a mech because not every player wants to do that some players want to be the guy who is the super stealthy psychic assassin or some players want to be the girl that is the you know scientific genius or whatever it is and so we had to make sure that the world we built had places for all of those players to be able to do those things.
0: And it sounds very familiar to uh, to what we did. I I'm uh, do a second podcast, the Savage Worlds GM podcast, and a few years ago we did a a, a sl- Series of shows where we created settings, and we created a mecha setting, and basically the way we did it sounds very familiar, very similar to the way you guys did it, and we just called it the Five Man Band. You know, so so right. we had five characters, and each one of them had a had a particular part of the mech and and so you know it, it does sound similar to what we had done.
1: You know, and whether you lean into that Power Rangers motif is kind of up to you individually, right?
0: Sure, yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, uh, so since
2: there 's the psychic component to this, um, what what are the uh, wh- is there a psychic blowback when if things go wrong what is the, what is the economy of mental power like uh, how does that work out in the setting and is it, is it all just uh, positive power like powerpoints, or you know, can, can the psychic go back and backlash and all those other kind of fun tropes
1: Well, I think part of the um, the intent of these projects was to. And each of these settings, in general, was to really look at the uh, the adventure edition of Savage Worlds and hold on, kind of as a core, what was presented there. I remember when the the um, when the adventure edition was in flux and a rule was changed, reducing the number of psychic powers that was available to starting characters. And you know, Eugene looked at it and said, "Okay, what do we do? Do we do we say that it's a setting rule that we have more psychic power?" Or do we reduce these so that it fits in with the, start, with the rules in the, the core rulebook? And we decided that what we were going to do is we were going to hold, for the most part, those core rules. We would build setting rules on top of those, but we didn't want to do too much fiddling. Because, you know, kind of the point is to, you know, get on the first floor with um, the new edition of Savage World. So that any, anybody who likes Savage World can pick up the book and, and can play. Um, now, that being said, backlash is a core rule. And so, um, you know, increased costs and uh, things going awry are a thing that should happen if you don't quite control your brain.
2: Nice. See, that's where I, I like when everything goes wrong. It's so much fun to watch your players when they're like in in little like eh, spirals of, of desperation trying to, trying to win and they, they take bigger and bigger gambles. And then it goes wrong and it's like, oh, here's where the GM can step in and like. Not to punish characters at all, but you just create opportunities for more role playing by figuring out like well what happens when you uh you know, stress your brain too much. What's what's the what are the consequences? So uh that's what's going to
1: the one of the things I really like about Savage Worlds is that it can be really swingy, right? That exploding dice thing is is a, it's a big deal. And swinginess to me is, is a feature, not a bug. Like suddenly a, a thing happening that was not expected by anybody, it enhances the outcome story of a role-playing game. And I tend to view it from that perspective, like you don't play a story, you create a story when you play a role playing game. And when you have the unexpected occur in that process, the story that you sit down and you tell over a couple beers after the game is over is that much better.
0: I love to hear that because I, I feel the same way. So uh, you're you're speaking to the choir. Um, I the exploding dice is one of the one of the better parts of the game. So right before we started recording, um, we were talking about the, the, again the parts of Savage Sign, and you had mentioned that you worked on uh, Pantheon. So what can you tell us? Uh, give us a little bit of a, a preview of that, and and what can people expect from that?
1: So Pantheon is a modern superhero setting. Um, it is. I like to cite my my um, my superhero influences primarily being people like Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison, but also more traditional people like Mark Waid and Kurt Busiek. In other words, that era of comics, you know, after the Dark Ages of the 90s was over, but before we sort of got into the new Silver Age of now, where we were talking about um, grown-up things without necessarily having to lean into the uh, the blood and guts of, like, 93, right? So, and big ideas, and I love big ideas. But one of the things that I, I think that a lot of superhero settings do wrong is they just try and recreate the wheels. They try and create a universe that started with World War II and has an analog for everybody that you can think of. And so with Pantheon, one of the things that I really wanted to do is I wanted to give it a different... Um, central conceits. I wanted to give it a different origin period, and I wanted to give a very specific kind of um, not necessarily just a, uh, a Batman analog and a Superman analog and a Captain America analog in in the nature of the setting. Um, so what I did is I said that the, our superhero universe starts during the Cold War, at the, at the height of the Cold War, in the middle of the space race, right? And um, there are are not that many no one knows how many but there are not that many um uh actually superheroes people with powers but the presence of superheroes really allowed technology to increase so there's a lot more of those kinds of um uh uh, gadget oriented or you know guys walking around in uh uh a power armor kind of thing. Those characters are actually more common than the people really, really with powers. Um, and the other thing that's really uh, important to me about settings like that is that they have a story to tell themselves. The, the players and the GMs they're going to they're going to tell stories and they're going to create adventure stories in the setting. But the setting itself also has a story, and that's important to me. And creating a the story that sits underneath it that will inform the way the players and the GM interact with the setting and yeah. that can grow and sort of be revealed over time, I think is a fun aspect of doing world creation.
2: Oh, absolutely. The, um, so what is, uh, give us a, a, a sample mechanic or a sample piece of fluff from, um, Pantheon that you're proud of and want to highlight.
1: Ah, uh, let's see. Um, one thing I really like that, that we built is, um, So when superheroes appeared, it was they they came out of nowhere and there was an American team and there was a Russian team. There were no superheroes and supervillains from the traditional perspective because they're, you know, these were these were political entities. Right. And um, the American team thought that the, the Russian team was villains and vice versa. Nice. And it wasn't until that conflict sort of. Disappeared as time went on, and you know we 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 quote unquote won the Cold War. That real villains and things like that started to appear because it wasn't a political conflict anymore. It was this thing where um, uh, now individuals seem to be having more access to this power, right? Um, so it sort of pushes it changes the nature of the of the the discussion of what superheroes are and what they sit in the setting. And that's one of the things I wanted to do was not do it like everybody else had done it repeatedly in the past.
2: The uh and what 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 do you love about the cold war and space race that that, that was the kind of origin point? What do you, what kind of themes or uh, elements do what did you pull out of that as the setting?
1: Well, everything is so propaganda oriented. Nothing was real as far as the American people were concerned and I'm sure the same was in Russia. Nothing was real at the time, right? Like so real people had to go into space and real people had to build those rockets but as far as the American people were concerned, these were these were demigods already. Your your American astronauts might as well have been superheroes to begin with. Um, they were infallible and if they weren't infallible they definitely didn't let the American people know how infallible they were. It's, you know you would not have in the middle of the space race had a news story about one of the astronauts driving to uh, Florida to beat up her, her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. Yes, right? with right, the exactly. diaper,
2: <laughs> that diaper story. Oh, my God, I love that story. <laughs> I mean, not that it happened. Um, but just, so you know.
1: there was a, there was a, already a built-in mythology around that. And when we think about the the shining perfect example of American history, we often are looking at that period, you know, the prior to the Vietnam War, after World War Two is over, when everything is supposedly perfect and we are, you know, uh, our acumen and our scientific ability and our economic power is allowing us to get to the moon, we're going to do it before those dirty communists. Right. And the other side was probably exactly the same. They were, you know, we were evil. As far as they were concerned, and they had finally found the the top pinnacle way that America, that human civilization rather can be, and so you already have a state of mythology. So, there's some superheroes in there, right? Like because that's what they are ultimately. I,
2: I love it. it. I love it. The yeah, that's great. Uh, we we the listeners have heard this before, but we talked. We mentioned it with Eugene. But the um, I am a huge fan of all the creators who are picking time periods in history that haven't been given nearly as much attention as other certain periods. Like, um, you know, World War II is hugely done in video games. Um, Not as much in role-playing games, but hugely done in video games. And in role-playing games, there's there's just so many analogs, as you said, for, like, Nazis, right? Like, that's... It's almost played out. Come on, guys! Like, let's do something. There, there, there were other interesting periods in history where you can pull out heroes and villains, and you know, conflicts and politics and religion and warfare and you know, philosophies that are just different from our own time. And uh, this setting sounds actually really unique. I love. I'm not a big supers fan, but I love your take on it. I think it's very unique on. Acknowledging, I mean, it's almost like a a psychological psychological treatise on America itself. Like, why did we develop superhero comics, and why did we develop them when we did? And um, I think it's a great little take on 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 just the like as you said, the propagandic nature of the Cold War, and you know, and how that what was going on in real life definitely influenced the sort of media we we turn to. And, and how um, I think you kind of bridge the gap on actually making it not only, um, you know, causal, but very relevant. And uh, so I think that, that's, ex- that's pretty exciting. I, I'm, I'm much more uh, eager to play this setting knowing that you, you kind of brought that historical realism uh, into it. So kudos for that. I, I just I love that there's more historical-inspired um, games reaching the market now uh, that aren't just you know one of like three periods that everybody does all the time because you know they're big but um you know Cold War is definitely one of the ones that I don't think it's done enough
1: well to be clear the, the game is set in the modern era in the in the post um post war on terror era but its its origins and the origins of the way superheroes operate are in that Cold War era. now if I ever get the opportunity to go back and set the initial set up, uh, a mini setting of the initial game circumstances of of that part, that Cold War era. I will totally do that thing, um, but we'll see how we'll see how each individual uh, aspect and and issue of Savage Sign treats Pantheon and whether people like it enough to want to revisit certain parts of it.
2: That's fantastic. No, I, I'm totally on board. The um, so yeah, one last question: um, What has it been like working on a project as ambitious as Savage Sign? And uh, um, what what are uh, one last thing you want to tell us about the Kickstarter because we'll be putting this out and there'll be it's already funded um, and there'll be a couple days left on it uh, so yeah tell us about the team and about your experience um, working with Aaron and the, and the rest of the crew and all that good stuff
1: it has been a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is for sure but it's been it's been a lot of fun and uh, uh, Aaron's really great um, he is good at sort of l- allowing you to spread out and then kind of tightening in where you sometimes maybe get a little too ambitious, right? Um, It's easy to say that you're going to build this giant thing and realize that you have have a deadline, and and there you have editorial to deal with, and that's good. I think that editorial and and limitations are good for you. Uh, But I have been allowed to for the first time actually write a a comic book in this process, because there will be, in each issue of Savage Sign for the year, we're going to do uh, uh, six pages of a Pantheon story which is super exciting for me um, uh, I have been one of those guys that wished I could write comic books since I picked up my first comic book at 10 years old right um, and I finally get to do that thing through this project which is super exciting and um, I'm also contributing fiction in the Pantheon universe to the to the Savage Find. so that's fun too. Excellent. Yeah
2: that, again another theme we've been picking up on is um uh, being published for the first time in a way um, that you've always wanted to be published. And uh, it's, it's fan- I mean, you obviously have a very extensive publishing publication history um, in other settings um, and platforms, but that the fact that, you know, that, that this is actually a, a Savage Worlds product that is um, allowed you to enter comic publication and creation as well. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a very cool theme of what's going on. I, I think, um, I mentioned this to Fox before, but I, and, and I mentioned this to Shane, um, and uh, I think right now we are seeing the start of a kind of Savage World's Renaissance. Um, you know, the Rocky Mountain Savages have been around for the better part of a decade or more, um, and then just this year, multiple other groups are like, "Hey, let's do a local Savage convention or a local Savage group." And there's some popping up in Southern California and over on the Delaware the, in the Northeast corridor, and. Um, and that's that's very cool to see that, you know, those kind of things are, are budding. And the number of new publishers with Suede and the Jumpstarts and all the aces, um, just how many new faces. Like people who are um, not new faces of the community who have definitely been around and producing content, but now they're actually getting editing and layout and art and publishing, publishing, not just, you know, fan publishing. And then all the people who are stepping in and just doing fan publishing for the first time um, – Oh, yeah. right.
1: The uh the Adventurers Guild is going to be an interesting middle ground between those two, right? You you have your professional publishers and then you have your fan publishers, but now there's a there's a new space in between those things that is gonna be a little bit of the Wild West, kind of like the uh the D and D DM's Guild is and some other things, storytellers vault, those kinds of places. But we're likely to see some really good work come out of that because some people have are Amazing, talented, and have no idea how to make those things happen. And now they have a place to make that thing happen with relatively low overhead and relatively low initial investment.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. The the, the barriers to entry are coming down. And, uh, you know, and I I think Savage Worlds is uniquely positioned as being a system that is – you know, uh, yes, there is a, there is still an incredible desire and consumption of traditional fantasy and, you know, D&D and Pathfinder and, you know, a dozen other systems are all very popular. But I think, um, you know, the, the amount of diversity... Like, you know, just look at the settings that are available in the first issue of The Savage Sign and how very, very different they all are. And, um, and you, know, you, you, you know, literally time and space apart um, for the, the, the style and, and the tropes and the, the trappings of those settings... Um, and and then just all of the different jump starts and, and then how fantastically different they are. Uh, it's a, I think it's an exciting time to be a Savage Worlds community member. Um, just seeing all the cool things that, that are uh, you know on the horizon and getting done and getting done really well. And uh, it, I mean the one thing that, that I'm looking at the sign going, how do you guys do it? It's the if, if the sign takes off, you guys are hopefully going to do this quarterly.
1: That's that is the hope, and you know the plan is for things like Pantheon. I've got entries for each of the next three uh, issues i'm working on right so uh it's going to be a living setting that goes through this entire year as long as everything works out you know um which is kind of neat and instead of having to do everything in one giant dump we can sort of see how things build and see what people respond to and and have a long term plan which can be fun to have right because gaming happens over time generally speaking yes people play one shots but a lot of times you know our gaming is kind of a lifestyle and to have uh, elements appear over that periods so that people get to integrate into their, their own games. Say, say that you decide to run a Pantheon campaign, you're going to learn secrets as time goes on. You know, the, that underlying story I was talking about in the setting is going to come out for you as it comes, and I like that, and that's an exciting thing, too. Plus, there's going to be new stuff, like just ideas that people hi- have, and someone throws out, like, hey, I want to do a setting that is about uh, zombie dolphins on Jupiter, and we go, okay, why not? Do it. See what happens. Give it a shot. You know, that might and be, they be the call next Call him thing. Flipper, Flipper, carrier
2: of the plague. Anyway, that'd <laughs> uh, be fantastic. The, um, well, I, we appreciate you coming on the show. We are very excited about what you're putting out in the community. And um, uh, for anybody else out there, um, do you do social media or is it in your way for fans to contact you or find you on the internet?
1: You can find me at www.ineller.com.
2: Perfect. Excellent. I nice have and easy.
1: about things.
2: Right. As we all do. It is definitely the lifestyle. I mean, it's like, you know, Fox and I just we we started rolling some dice and now we run a club. We run conventions. We um, do a podcast. We do websites. We are publishing books. And, yeah, it, it, it gets a hold of you. It is definitely like the zombie plague. You just get infected and you just, you know, it becomes it takes over. So we appreciate you joining us and we're excited for the project. So thanks, man. Thank you very
0: much. All right. Have a great one. Have a great day. Be sure to
2: check out part two where we interview Aaron Acevedo and Brian Reeves.